Alright. Working with our new thing here. Alright. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back. For those of you that were out of town, it seemed like this last week was like the universal vacation week for about 85% of our church. Good to see you guys. Some of you guys went to some great places, too. I had to like get off social media at different points because I was jealous. Um, but it's been an eventful summer so far. We, uh, we're about halfway through the summer here. And it's been pretty full. I know we've got, we, we went through our first camp. I know it was great to hear the teens sharing about teen camp. Teen camp was fantastic this year. I know parents, I know there's a lot of sacrifice and it costs a lot of money to send your kids to camp. But it is absolutely one of the greatest investments you can make with your money. And it was such a great week this year. Um, it's been eventful even in the sports world. I don't know if you noticed the U.S. women's national team won the, the World Cup today. As if it was going to be close. Um, L.A. is officially Basketball USA again. Look at the booing. Kawhi Leonard's playing for the Clippers now. DeMarcus Cousins is, is playing for L.A. Like all these great players are now in L.A. Uh, so it's been, and, and it's only a month away from football starting back up. So I'm, I'm very excited right now. <laughs> um, and it's been a great, uh, a great summer so far as we've been going through our, our series on grace. You know, Scott talked about it. That for the last eight weeks, we've been, uh, we've been trying to get us rooted in, in grace in the Bible. If you remember from uh, 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy as he's wrapping up his last letter, he tells him, look, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That as God's people, we need to be strong in God's grace. And what it's, what it's gotten, what it's done for me is whenever I return to a focus on grace, in my own personal Bible study, from reading a book, uh, a sermon on it, whatever, what it always does to me, I don't know if this has done this for you the last eight weeks, but it makes me realize, number one, how much I need grace. Number two, how deficient I am in trusting God's grace. But also how much I struggle with grace. And today is our last sermon in the series. We're not going to be done talking about it, though. We're going to actually, uh, after our desert trilogy here in a few weeks, uh, we're going to be going through the book of Galatians, and there's a lot in there on grace, uh, and that'll be really great. And we, and we don't want to just abandon this. So when we think about who we are as disciples of Jesus, we need to continue to be rooted in grace. Uh, but there's also a battle with this. That grace is not something that just, all right, you heard a great sermon, and man, I just feel like I... I get it now. It's never just that easy. And I want to start off my, my sermon here by going through a few scriptures on grace. They're going to be up on the screen, so you can just write them down if you're taking notes. Uh, some of these we've already talked about in the series. Some we haven't. But I want us to just pay attention to specifically these four verses, that there's a common thread in them on the topic of grace, right? We'll start with Romans chapter 3. It says there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And what's going on here in this passage, you know, this is a familiar one to us, the Jews were struggling with comparing themselves to the Gentiles. And they were struggling with seeing themselves as more righteous. They looked at the sin of the Gentiles and they were like, man, these guys really need grace? We're doing pretty good. And so Paul spends basically the entire chapter to remind them that they are on even playing, uh, playing grounds 
when it comes to their sin. That you and I are messed up people and equally fallen, but have the opportunity to be saved by grace. And what that communicates is it doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter if you were raised in church or not. We're all needing grace because we're all sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We've read this one a couple times in the series. And basically what Paul is trying to communicate to the church in Ephesus is the only reason that we have the opportunity to be saved is by grace. You have never, you are never, you've never and you will never earn your salvation. There is no amount of good deeds you will ever accomplish that will earn your salvation. It is only by grace. Reminder from Isaiah, he says, your best deeds are a filthy rag, a menstrual cloth to God. That's biblical. I'm not just like selling it over here, okay? James 4. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor or grace to the humble. In this passage, it's very similar to Romans 7, the the doo-doo passage or the the Dr. Seuss passage. I've used both. But it's where Paul talks about the good I want to do, this I don't do, the things I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. That's what's actually going on in this chapter or in these verses in James. He's saying, look, Even when we want to be righteous, there's our sinful nature, this wicked spirit in us that keeps leading us to want to be sinful. But God recognizes that and it says, I don't know if you caught it there, it says that God gives us more grace. We have a war going on inside our hearts that fights against righteousness. But God continues to show favor and grace but there's a condition in this one that says that you have to be humble. Last one is Hebrews 13. It says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. And in the whole book of Hebrews, what it was done, it's written, uh, it's written at a time when the church was going some, through some of their most intense persecution. Christians are literally being lit on fire in the streets. Nero is regularly sending soldiers to houses to round up Christians to go send them to be eaten in the arena. This was their every day they were hearing these kinds of stories. And what, was be, what, what the temptation was is that the Jewish Christians were going, you know what, when we were Jews and just Jews, we didn't struggle like this. So maybe we should go back to Judaism. It seems safer. And the whole book of Hebrews was written to say, no, don't give up. Don't stop doing the things that God wants you to do under the new covenant. They were struggling with going back and trying to lean back on old customs. Following the Old Testament laws. We'll, 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 we'll eat these foods. We'll obey God through obeying the Old Testament law. And that, that'll be safe. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be strengthened by following the Old Testament. You should be strengthened by grace. Why did we read all this? And what is the shared commonality in these four passages? 
Well, first of all, all these letters were written to disciples. All four of the passages that we, were, that we just read, they weren't written to people that were trying to become Christians. They were written to people that were already Christians that were supposed to be living in grace. And what it communicates is that they were all struggling with retreating back into an old way of thinking and trusting in something superficial or mildly tangible rather than grace. They've been given grace, but they were wanting to run to something that they felt like they could get their hands on. Good deeds. Fixing your sins and your problems in your life. Old traditions that, that we all as human beings want to run to these kinds of things to feel some sense of security. And the whole thing, the whole common thread here is that Paul and these other writers are saying, no, 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 no. Grace is your security. What does this mean? We have trouble submitting to and trusting in God's love and favor. It almost sounds weird to say that out loud. That we as people, we fight God's grace. We resist it. We want something else. And what I see in my relationship with God my problems with grace, it's not an intellectual or a conceptual understanding of it. It's submitting to it. It's submitting to the reality of this undeserving, unrepayable, unquantifiable, all-consuming, transforming, endless ocean of grace and God's favor and letting it define me every day. Not a thing or an action or a deed. I know grace is faithful but it's also less tangible to my stubborn heart. And so today, the title of our sermon is called Grappling with Grace. Let's say a prayer. Father, I do just want to thank you so much for the focus that we've been able to have looking at grace. So grateful for your patience with us. Father, I know that we struggle to get it. And I really pray here that, that especially in this last sermon of the series, that you really speak through me to share what you want shared in the Scriptures. Please move me out of the way. And I pray, God, that you will help us to, to really wrestle with this and to trust you with this. In your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to Genesis 32. We're going to be here for most of this sermon. But we're going to look at an Old Testament character that I've, had, that I've been revisiting this year. We're going to talk about Jacob. It's my namesake. This is what my parents named me after. But I want to just throw it out there while we're turning through our Bibles. What are some of the things that Jacob's known for? Let's get some participation from the audience. He's a liar, okay? Wrestling with God, you're jumping ahead. <laughs> but yes, you're right. Okay, what else? He's a deceiver. He runs. He's a great runner. We're going to talk about that. Okay, anything else? Stole a birthright from his brother. Lied to his dad. Think about this. This is a man in the Bible. He's a patriarch. And, and the, when we talk about Jacob, the things that he's most known for is all the bad stuff. This dude was a mess. Turmoil seemed to follow him everywhere he went. He wasn't a very spiritual guy in his nature. I can just, we can just agree on that. Right? He was sneaky, he was deceptive, he was emotional. Literally, his name, Jacob, means the heel grabber, which means the deceiver. 
Okay, none of this stuff I can relate to. But in spite of this, God kept showing him favor. God kept giving this dude grace. And I want to give a little background here before we jump into, this, uh, into these verses. Jacob had just left uh, his father-in-law, Laban. And there's this whole thing because he was a shepherd and Laban told me he could keep a certain amount of sheep, but like he was like raising his own mini flock army underneath all of this. And then his uncle found out about it. Or it's, uh, No, it's not his uncle. It's father-in-law. Anyways, his father-in-law found out about it, got really upset, and he ran. He ran away from, he ran away from everything without telling him. And Laban ends up finding him, confronting him, talking about it. They get resolved. It's all good. But God had told him in this process, I want you to go back home. Go back where you came from. And if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, that meant that he was going to go back to see his brother for the first time since he had stolen everything from him. His birthright, his blessing from his dying father. This was going to be the first time he was going to see Big Bro after all that. And this was the first time that Jacob was really ever going to have to confront something. Because like was mentioned, when his brother found out about everything, he ran away. When Laban found out about everything, he ran away. And now God is telling him, now I want you to go home where your brother's waiting for you. And like I said, until this moment, his habit was to run away when things got hard. He didn't really turn to God in any kind of significant way that we can see in the Bible. And you know what? We all can relate to this. We try to run from the consequences of our sin, from difficulties in life, from emotional things that happen. When things get hard, our human nature is to run. We don't like it. Pain hurts, so we want to stop it. And I want you to even think for yourself here, before we dig into this, when things have gotten tough, what are the things that you tend to run to? Is it your job? Is it brainless escapes? Social media, TV, whatever? Relationships? Impurity? Substances? You know, through the course of my life, I've run to a lot of things. I've run to impurity and pornography. I've run to relationships that were unhealthy. Um, and lately, and I've been finding this been interesting, is, is I've been really busy with all the camps and stuff that we got going on. And I've been kind of running to that. Because I've got a lot to do. Charge of all the games, run around. I shared my Fitbit numbers and stuff. I was, I was, doing, some, I was doing some great stepping at team camp. I've been running to top 10 countdowns, like top 10 UFC knockouts and scariest water slides in the world, stupid things like that on YouTube. I've been spending a little bit more time on social media than I would probably like to admit. But really all this stuff is, is there places where I go so I don't have to sit with God. Where I don't really have to deal with my own heart, with some of the life things that have been going on lately. With, with how I'm feeling about my own relationship with God. that I, It's easier to run to these things because then I don't have to confront it. And you know what? God has been using this. God has been using my daughter even to call me out. The other day, 
Peyton came up to me and she goes, Dad, you've been on your phone a lot. Can you put that down? I'm like, sure, baby. Yeah, so out of the mouth of babes, right? But just like Jacob, God will challenge us to start confronting the realities of our life and our relationship with him. We talked about forgiveness last week, and you know what? God was giving Jacob a very real opportunity to go learn resolution with his brother. But on the way, this happens. Let's pick up in verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanam. I want to stop there for a moment. Because I want us to think about this. On, on the way back to his home, God says angels to go meet with him. How cool is that? Like knowing what's about to happen and the tough thing that's in front of you. And literally God's like, here's an angel just so you know that I'm, I got your back. And it fires him up. It fires me up. And he gets to experience through this even a unique expression of God's favor, of God's grace. And I definitely think that God in this was saying, you know what, I'm with you in this. I'm sending you back. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm with you. Here's some encouragement just so you can feel it. You know, what's crazy about this is that Jacob was one of the few people in the Bible that got to experience this multiple times. This wasn't the only time he saw angels. There's the whole thing where even he's out in the, he's having the dream in the desert and he gets to see the stairway up and down from heaven and angels coming up and down from it. Jacob got to experience something like this multiple times. And what this communicates to me, thinking about all the things that Jacob is known for, is in spite of his sin and his flaws, God continued to show him grace in some very unique ways. Think about the times even maybe where you've been struggling with things in life or struggling with your relationship with God and it felt like God just kind of showed up in a uniquely graceful way. Just some special encouragement, a phone call out of the blue, some circumstance in your life shifts and you're just kind of like, okay, I'm going to be okay. God does like to do that. And then, after this, he hears that big bro's coming And he's coming with 400 people. Nice welcome home party, right? Let's read what happens after this. Because after he he freaks out a little bit and realizes, I need to pray about this. Let's pick up in verse 9. It says, Then Jacob prayed, O God, my father of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives. I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also my mothers, the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So there's something in this prayer I want, us, I want us to focus on here for a moment. It seems like Jacob is finally in a place where he's starting to grasp some things about God's grace. I don't know if you caught it there, but even though he's afraid and everything that's happening, he, he basically prays, look, I, am, I realize that I am unworthy of any good thing that I have in my life. What, I came over here with just a staff in my hand, and you have made me into two whole camps. Everything that I have has been God showing me favor. 
That's where he's at in his prayer. And at a time when, where there was a real possibility that his livelihood was in danger, he's starting to grasp what was even mentioned later on in James chapter 117, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. That God's grace has been at the root of every good thing in his life. Sometimes when things get hard or when things can be taken away, we begin to see God's grace in, some, in a more clear way in our lives. You know, that sometimes, sometimes it's, God, it's God's way of opening our eyes to seeing like, man, everything that I have has not been because I've deserved it. God has really given me more than I could ever understand. But even in this, though, he still prays to be saved. He prays to be rescued from what's about to happen. And what happens after the prayer is he still he realizes, okay, Esau's coming with 400 guys. He's a really good hunter. Uh, okay, half of you guys are going to go over here. Half of you are going to stay with me because if he attacks us, at least half of the stuff won't die. So it's not like he prayed this connected with God's grace and everything was good. But then he ends up going, sending everybody else away to go pray by himself. And we're going to read the part that everybody knows from verse 22. It says, That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. And stop there. So it starts off with this passage saying Jacob was alone. I want you to think if you felt alone lately. Not, not necessarily lonely, but just alone. Where you're just aware of kind of yourself, where you are maybe with God, just who you are in yourself, that this, this is kind of where he was at right now. Not just the physical presence, but he was alone. And it's in this moment, this time of being alone, where God meets Jacob where he's at. And what's interesting about this is, you think about Jacob's prayer. Jacob's prayer was, God, I want you to, if, if you're willing, save me from what's about to happen. And this is God's answer to this prayer. God shows up, meets Jacob where he's at in his fear, his anxiety, and his uncertainty. And he shows up with grace, but the grace isn't angels. It's not comfort, but to fight. Jacob is alone and restless, thinking about what's about to happen the next day. And the answer to his prayer for rescue the night before meeting his brother and the 400 men coming with him, 
is for God to come in some kind of form for an all-night battle. How many of you guys would be encouraged by that answer to your prayer? And I'm not sure how this, how this hits you right now. But I've read this story dozens upon dozens of times throughout my life. And it wasn't until a couple months ago as I was studying this out that this began to sink in with me. God knew that what Jacob needed at this time, the form of grace that he needed to take with Jacob, was not encouragement, it was a fight. God showed up to fight Jacob. A one-on-one, all-night wrestling match with just him and God. Makes me think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before the crucifixion, when he's sweating drops of blood and anguish as he's praying to his father. Jonah being stuck inside of a fish for three days, completely alone in the darkness of a fish, praying to God and humbling himself. Daniel in the lion's den, standing in front of a predator in the darkness. When it was just these individuals, alone with God, having to confront their reality. God knows so perfectly what we need. And He knows when His grace sometimes might mean angels and comfort. And it might mean Him saying, you need to tape up your ankles and your hands because we're about to fight. Because sometimes there's issues, well, a lot of times really, there are issues in our lives that God is trying to help us to see, only I can change this, but you've got to be willing to wrestle with me through it. And I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you guys about this. I was having a quiet time on this a couple months ago, and I got angry as I was reading my Bible. I hated this. With everything in me, Because when I'm feeling the things that I'm feeling, I don't want to fight. I want a pat on the back, a Coke, and a smile. I want to be comforted. I want to feel good. I want to know that God's got my back and it's going to be okay. You can do it, buddy. And I remember reading my Bible. I was at a Starbucks and I was reading and I was just like, No! I don't like this. Because what it communicated to me is that God wasn't going to let me run. God didn't want me to run from Him. God didn't want me to run from the situations that I've been dealing with. He was going to make me fight with Him in the middle of a Starbucks. And when we look at Jacob's history, In this passage, nothing showed in his life that he was ready or capable of this. Nothing. The description about him when he was younger is it said said Esau was the hunter. He was the man out in the fields. He was the one doing all the machismo stuff. And Jacob stayed among the tents. He was what we would call indoorsy. He didn't do hard things. He didn't wrestle. He didn't hunt. He cooked. 
But something was different about Jacob this time. He was ready for a fight. He was ready for a fight even when it really started to hurt. I don't really understand what it's saying when it says that Jacob began to overpower him. Because my human brain doesn't... I'm not getting into that. I'm not going to attempt to swing at that one. But then he gets his hip wrenched and he continues to fight anyways. His hurt hip didn't become an excuse and a reason to stop. So many times when it hurts is when we tap out. Right? Then I'll wrestle to a certain point, but... Ah, that was an ankle. That was definitely an ankle. And then we're done. But what we don't realize maybe, and what Jacob maybe was starting to grasp at this point, is that the blessing, the favor, the grace, the answer to this prayer, it was on the other side of the wrestling. When it hurts, usually it means we're on the edge of a real change or a different kind of experience in our relationship with God. And so we go to this place where we wrestle with God and God's saying, you don't know what's waiting for you. And then we go, ah, it hurts. Nope, I'm done. And I, I struggle with this. I really do. I like to think that I'm pretty tough and I can handle a lot of different things, but when it comes to really dealing with me, when it comes to really, okay, how... How does Jake feel about himself and his relationship with God right now? I'm kind of a pansy. And lately I've been seeing that in myself. And it's, and it's kind of embarrassing and shameful for me to say it out loud like that. I want to be spiritual. I want to get my heart wrapped around grace. But I quit before I get to experience it half the time. And at the end of this, it says, Jacob wouldn't let him go. And I love that statement, that fighter's attitude. When, when the man wrestling with him says, all right, it's time to let me go. And he says, no, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until I see what this grace looks like. And he says, okay, got your blessing. But two things happened as a result of this. It's pretty cool. God changed Jacob's name. Changed his name from the deceiver to the overcomer. Israel, because you have wrestled with God and with man and you've overcome. What a cool name. But think about this. We don't, we don't know the Hebrews necessarily as just Hebrews. We know them as Israelites. This is the moment that that happened. Him wrestling with God, him getting the name change, his descendants were going to be called Israelites for the rest of history because of this moment. And the second thing that happened as a result of this, he had a new limp. It says he got up, and this was his life for the rest of his life. God didn't fix it. 
He didn't take it away. He just said, all right, here's your staff. Later on in Hebrews 11, when it, when it, when it praises Jacob as a, as a man of faith, we preached about this when we went through that Hebrews 11 series, it says the thing that he's praised for is worshiping on the top of his staff when he was old. Probably was because he had a bad hip. But there's something about scars. There's something about a memory of pain that makes you think about what it changed. So for the rest of his life, as Jacob would wake up in the morning, every time it rained, feeling his sore hip, he could remember, that was the night that I wrestled with God. This thing that's killing me, this thing that hurts, that's a reminder, that was the night that God gave me my new name. That was the night that I got God's blessing. This thing that was painful ended up being grace. When we wrestle with God and the reality of grace for real, we will never leave unchanged. To really wrestle with God, to really have to struggle with grace, there is never a time where you do that for real that you will leave with nothing happening. God will always leave a mark. And I want to look at one more scripture about this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 12. You still with me? Water break. All right, the second half of verse 7, it says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was facing a challenge here with some kind of personal demon. We don't know what it was. Some commentators suggest it, was, it might have been a physical ailment, that it was something, you know, there's a lot of commentators that believe that he had bad eyesight. And so maybe that was part of the thing that just kept bothering him. Um, some people believe it, it possibly was a, sin, was a sin from his past that kept following him. Uh, if you ever saw the Apostle Paul movie, I highly recommend it. But the way they portray it is, is it, was his, um, it was his guilt, the faces of the people that he helped to kill before he became a Christian. No matter what it was, it was plaguing him. And he prayed three times that God would take it away. Now, I don't think this was three times in one day. I don't think he only prayed about it three times. Because we all know if there's something that's really bothering you, something that's really wrecking your life, you don't pray about it just three times. What I picture in my head is that this was three different times where maybe he was fasting. He was on his knees. He was begging God, please change this thing in my life. This thing that hurts, this thing that, 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 is, that is just wrong. I want you to take it away from me. 
How many times maybe have you prayed something like that? Or there's been something in your life, either a, a challenging time, things you've dealt with in your family or financially or something like that, mental health issues, or a sin, something that's just a, a, a part of your sinful nature that keeps coming up periodically, something that keeps nagging at you, where you've just begged God, please, God, if you would just take this away, I would be better. I would love you more. I would, I would be a better disciple. I would make more disciples. All these things, life would just be better if you just took this thing away. I've prayed that a lot. But you know what God's answer to his prayer was? No. Yeah, I see you fasting. Yeah, I see you praying. And you know, when you look at the Bible, Paul's prayers were powerful prayers. They had some pretty incredible impact when you look at the book of Acts and some of the letters there, the things that he got to do. And God's answer to this powerful man's prayers is no. God showed up for a fight with Paul. I believe what Paul, what God was trying to communicate to Paul in that moment, he says, no, 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 no. What you need is not for me to take this hard thing away or for me to fix all of your unrighteousness or to make life easier and simpler. What you need is to trust in my grace. The grace that brings you salvation. My grace that forgives your shortcomings before you were saved and after. My grace that teaches you to say no to unrighteousness and to repent. My grace that strengthens you in weakness so that you can work hard and pour yourself out as a disciple. My grace that shows itself in your talents, the money you give and the ways that you serve in my kingdom. That's what you've got to trust in. Because I don't know if you've ever processed this before, but when we're asking God to take things away, what we're really communicating to God is, I don't want to trust grace. I want to trust in my life if it gets better. I don't want to need grace anymore. I want to be over that phase of grace needing. And God told Paul, no. I'm not taking away this hard thing. I'm not taking away your mental health issue. I'm not taking away the temptations that you feel that you struggle with. I'm not taking away this challenge that you're having with your kids. I'm not taking away the problems you're having financially with your job. I'm not taking away these things from you. I want you to trust that my grace is bigger. And once Paul got this, so he started bragging about it. Once he submitted to saying, you know what, you're right. God's grace is sufficient. It was sufficient enough to save me and it's sufficient enough to cover over my, multiple, my multitude of sins. It's sufficient enough to deal with this problem right now. It says he started boasting about his weakness. Like, yeah, I'm really selfish sometimes. It's not okay, but God is good. And even though I can struggle with being selfish, God's grace is bigger and I get to be selfless. Even though I struggle with being really tight-fisted and I don't want to give my money, when I give it, I get to see how God rains down blessings.
whatever this thing was for him, his, his wrenched hip, the thing that made him walk with a limp, he recognized that his strength comes from grace. But the question for us is, what does grappling with grace need to be for you? What's the thing that you won't surrender to grace? That thing that you hold on to, that thing that you don't trust God with. Maybe it's just your relationship with God in general that, you know what, you don't really, you don't really want to let grace be the thing that defines you. For me, when I need to grapple with grace, sometimes what that means for me is I've got to fast. I've got to fast for days. Months. If it's a thing, not necessarily food. Sometimes what grappling with grace means for me, it means putting my worst foot forward to be brutally honest with somebody that can help me spiritually. To own maybe a sin that I've been struggling with or just a place in my heart that's just not righteous that I know I've got to talk about. Grappling with grace can mean lately going to Starbucks. I go there with my headphones on. I read my Bible for a while. I open up Microsoft Word and just write all the filth and garbage in my heart and just get honest with God. Sometimes it's late at night, being on my knees, praying. It's playing music, singing songs that speak to the stubbornness of my heart. Sometimes it's long prayer walks where I just go out for a couple hours and I don't come home until later. And I would like to tell you that I'm spiritual enough that I do this a lot. But oftentimes God has to come confront me in order to do this. God meets us in our weaknesses, in our hard moments to confront us and keep us from running so we can trust His grace. And I want to close with a story before we take communion here together. In 1725, there was a man born in England named John Newton. His mother brought him up with a scripture and when he was young, or while he was young, until she died when he was just a kid. As a 19-year-old, he was forced to join the crew of a ship where years later he was transferred to a different ship that was involved with the 18th century slave trade. And through that, he was involved with horrific things. Things that hardened his heart to God and that led him to wild behavior and even mocking God. And when he was 22, he was on board a ship that sank. And miraculously, he survived. And this made him start to question where he was at in his life and to start pursuing God again. He started to pray, to read the Bible and find friends that helped him to know who God was. And eventually, he ended up leaving the slave trade to become a pastor. He began leading people to a God that he once mocked. But he still couldn't run from the guilt and the reality of his past in the slave trade. It haunted him. But later on, however, when the slavery abolition movement began to rise up in England, he ended up being one of the key testimonies that helped to shift the course in abolishing slavery in England. 
He's able to share about some of the horrific things that he saw in an industry that was on the backs of human suffering. This was something that continued to haunt him for the rest of his life. But in 1779, as he was reflecting on his life and wrestling with God, he wrote the song Amazing Grace. You can imagine how this man felt about himself and the choices that he had made in his life. Even now, the idea of somebody being involved with slavery on that kind of level there's a, part of, there's a part of each of us that just we cringe, you feel angry. And then to hear that this man became a pastor that was now supposed to live with grace. But the words of this song continue to speak to us even now. You probably can't think of another song that was written 250 years ago, let alone one that we still sing today. But there's something about the words of this song that we love. Because it speaks to the truth of each and every one of us and the reality of what grace is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Now once was lost, but now I'm found. Now I was blind, but now I see. God's grace is bigger than us. But just like this man, every day of his life after becoming a Christian, he had to wrestle with what grace had to mean in his life. Most of us have been running from grace because we're afraid to wrestle. Part of what I believe communion is supposed to be is a chance for us to wrestle. For us to sit and reflect on the reality of what we deserve but what Jesus was willing to do. But beyond just taking communion today, I want to implore you as your brother that if you've been running, it's time to go confront God at Peniel. It's time to wrestle with whatever that sin is, whatever, that, whatever the, the challenges you've been going in your life, the thing that you keep wanting God to take away. Maybe God's saying, no, I'm not going to take it away. I want you to come meet with me to fight about it. Grace is something we have to grapple with. We have to grapple with it every day, but then there's unique times where God allows us to do this. And I want to urge us, as we're wrapping up our series on grace here, don't let these be like, oh yeah, that was cool when we studied grace. This is supposed to be what defines us. This is what Paul said as one of his dying letters, saying, be strong in this. Like I said, sometimes we're not going to get the reality of grace until we learn to fight with it. Let's say a word of prayer and we're going to take communion together. Father, I just want to thank you so much for your patience with us. That God, that just like Jacob, as much of a mess as he was, a liar, a sinner, that God, you continue to pour out your grace on him and I know, God, that you continue to pour out your grace on us. And Father, I'm sorry for the ways that I run. I'm sorry for the ways that I try to avoid really confronting you. Confronting the truth of grace. Letting my life be defined by it. I pray, Father, that you, that you will fill us with your spirit. That you will help us to not just feel emotional or whatever. Or just walk away from this as a normal church service. But that this will be something that continues to change us as we go forward. 
as in our relationship with you as we learn how to fight with you. God, I love you so much. Thank you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.